where moths of vermin do not destroy, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is God's word. You may be seated. Up here on the uh, the screen is some information about uh, about purposing and how you can do it online. Uh, you can complete your confidential financial planning card online at www.mymac2014.com. Uh, Alan Babcock, one of our shepherds, uh, announced a couple of Sundays ago that we were going to be changing our calendar year from a, uh, a March 1st to the end of February to a January 1st to the end of December financial year which means that we're going to bump up a little bit the purposing process. If you're a longtime member of our Mac family, you know what that's all about. We'll talk some more about it this next week. But if you're new to Mac, uh, we would like for you to go to our website and to check out some of this information. It's, it's really important that we get your purpose cards in. We don't have to get a physical card in. You can actually go online, as it says up here on the screen, and do it confidentially. It goes straight to, uh, to Alan. He is the only one that sees it. And that information that we get on your financial commitment for the next year, your purposing of the way that you have been blessed by God towards the ministries of this church, how we set the, uh, the budget and how we, we, we extend the, the ministry horizons of our, of, our, our, of our church in this community and in this state and around the world. So it's really, really important uh, for you to, to be thinking and praying about what your weekly financial commitment or what your financial commitment will be over the next year as it pertains to our church budget. Again, I'm going to say a little bit more about that next week, but wanted to plant that seed and to give you a heads up, especially those of you who already have an idea of what you would like to commit for next year. I know it's September, uh, but if you already have an idea of what it is that you would like to, to, uh, to purpose towards our church budget, you can go today or tomorrow or any time in the next few days online and do this uh, without filling out a card, and it goes straight to Alan. And again, it is confidential. If you have some questions, you're new to our church family and not really aware of how that budgeting process is set up, you can go to any of our elders. I'd recommend uh, going to Alan since he is the one that works with that most closely, or go to anybody in our budget, uh, on our budget finance committee, uh, Richard Chow, Shane West uh, would be two guys that you could go there and get that information, and they would be happy to answer any of your questions. We are going to, uh, to talk a little bit this morning about money, and before we do that, we're going to ask everyone to bow their heads and join their hearts as we pray to God to bless us. Father, we're grateful for all, all opportunities that we have to come together as a church family and to come together and to praise you and to worship you and to revel in all of the blessings that you have given us, not only in the past, but even in this past week, in this very day, and all the promises that we know that are true in your Son Christ for our future. We are nothing without you. We acknowledge the greatness of your gifts to us, primarily the gift of forgiveness and salvation and a clean conscience and a home, Father, at your side for all of eternity. 
thank you for this opportunity to study and to think deeply as disciples about how your word instructs us to live our lives and, and to see all the, the, the blessings that have been poured out into our lives to see how they are to be managed as disciples. And to this end, Father, as we study these passages, we pray in the name of Jesus to have eyes that see and ears that hear and to be blessed by the greatness and the, the depth of your word. Thank you for all of these things that we have in Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Start with three jokes. First joke deals with a farmer and his wife. Farmer comes in and says, you're not going to believe this, the, the way that we have been blessed by God. One of our cows has given birth to twin calves. And the wife says, it's wonderful. God is so good to us. God is so good to us. And he says, you know what? God is so good to us. You know what we're going to do? We're going to sell at the right time both of these calves, and I'm going to give half of it to the church. She is in agreement. She thinks that's a wonderful idea. Well, a couple of days later, Husband comes in, sits down at the lunch table. It's looking a little sheepish. Wife says, honey, what is wrong? He goes, I don't think we're going to be able to give the way that we thought we were going to be able to give. And the wife says, what happened? He goes, the Lord called his calf home. The moral, listen, they get better. They get better. The moral of that is, you have to have a bigger reason to give than a reason not to give. You have to have a greater reason to be generous than to not be generous. The second joke deals with, uh, with two really, really affluent guys, really, really wealthy guys who are getting ready to play golf at this exclusive resort out in the middle of a, a, a beautiful piece of property. And just as they're walking up to the first tee, a very beautiful young, young, young woman comes up to one of the, these older guys and says, you know, while you're playing golf, I'm going to hang out at the pool, and then when you're done with golf, we'll meet back at the, uh, the hotel room, and then we'll, we'll go to dinner. And then she kisses him on the cheek, turns around, walks off. Well, his friend looks at him and says, my goodness, that's, that's such a pretty girl. Is that your, your granddaughter? He goes, no, that's my wife. And he goes, well, how old are you? He goes, I'm 77, and she's 27. He said, how in the world did you get her to marry you? He said, well, I lied about my age. Well, I said, I think you probably lied about your age. What would you do, tell her you were 57? He said, no, I told her I was 97. <laughs> the moral of that story is that for some people, it will always be about the money. Third story. There's this woman that walks into a downtown New York City bank. And she says, I'd like to talk to a loan officer. She says, show you right this way. She sits down in front of the loan officer. She says, I'd like to have a $10,000 loan to go to Europe for two weeks. He says, yeah, we can arrange that, uh, but we're going to need some collateral. She said, no problem. She hands him the keys to a $75,000 Audi sedan. Really expensive, high-tech automobile. He says, yeah, we can use that as collateral. Gives her the $10,000, signs a paper. She goes to Europe for two weeks, comes back, goes back to that downtown New York City bank, goes up to the loan officer, pays off the loan in full $10,000 plus $78.32 in interest. And he says, you know, we really appreciate your business, but while you were gone to Europe, we kind of did a little research on you. We discovered 
that you are an incredibly wealthy woman, that you could have paid for this out of just, you know, the change in your purse. Why in the world did you take out a loan? She said, well, where else in New York City can you park a car and secure it, a $75,000 Audi, for $78.32 for two weeks? (laughs) Moral of that story is, what looks like foolishness initially will turn out in the end to be very, very wise. That's why we're going to talk about money. You know that our culture sends out a lot of different kinds of messages about money and about financial resources, and they're mixed at times, and a lot of times they're very, very harmful kinds of messages. And this is why disciples have to think about money, and they have to think about the financial resources that they have and the treasures that they've been blessed with by God. And disciples have to think about it in two different ways. The first is a practical way of approaching money and thinking about money. And the reason you have to do that, church, is this. Money will misbehave. Money will misbehave. And people who put together budgets for their money are trying to get that money to behave. Because if that money misbehaves, then it can lead you to a place where you're full of anxiety. It's a place that gets real dark. It's a place that's stressful. It's a place that can ruin and destroy your life. And that's why wise people have budgets. And that's why they have those budgets. It's to get those, that money, those resources to behave. And that's why our church offers Financial Peace University. And that's why our church offers budgeting seminars and and counsel and these kinds of things. And if you're somebody that is kind of wondering whether or not your money is behaving or misbehaving, then I suggest that you find one of our ministers, Doug Brown, Douglas Brown, and talk to him about how you can get into Financial Peace University or into some of these budgeting seminars so that your money can behave. The other way that we think about it, I mean, it's not just enough to think about it practically. As a disciple of Jesus, you have to think theologically about your money. And one of the reasons that we do this is because after the kingdom of God, the subject of the kingdom of God, the subject that Jesus talks about far more than anything else in the Bible is about money and wealth and possessions. He talks about those things more than anything else in the New Testament outside the kingdom of God. Now listen to these verses from Jesus' mouth as he addresses money and the use of money in all kinds of different areas. He says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 2, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Jesus has an opinion on how disciples give to charity to take, take care of the needy. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 19, he says, Do not store up for yourselves, finish it, treasures on earth where moth and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Drop down a couple of more verses, verse 21. For where your treasure is, say the next part with me, church, there your heart will be also. There your heart will be also. Now, we'll see others as we go through this lesson, but these suffice it to say that there is a connection between discipleship and stewardship. There is a connection between discipleship and stewardship. Your view on money matters greatly. It, 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 it is highly important for you to have a theological undergirding for the way that you treat the, the, the blessings of money and financial resources and material blessings, in fact, any kind of blessing. It is so important that you understand that from the perspective of a disciple. And the reason is, is that God will never be enthroned in your life until you have dethroned money. 
That's one of the messages that we have. It's a harmful message in our culture. Is that it's all about the money. It's all about the money. What was the line from the famous movie? Show me the... It's all about the money. I'm telling you as a disciple of Jesus that God will never be enthroned in your heart until you intentionally, with purpose, dethrone money and put it in its proper, proper place. That is to be an intentional act of a disciple. As Jesus says in Luke chapter 16 and verse 13, no one can serve two masters. That's a funny way to talk about money as your master. But we get a sense of what he's talking about, right? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and you'll love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You cannot do that. A.W. Tozer, many of you are familiar with his writings. In fact, the, the family's class is going through a book, The Pursuit of God, that he wrote a generation ago. He wrote another book called uh, I Talk Back to the Devil. And in it, he gives the illustration of this fellow that's standing at the edge of the wilderness, and he has this gigantic panoramic grand uh, landscape that's just beautiful and reminds him of the greatness of God as a creator and how God has blessed him so powerfully with, with beauty and all these, these wonderful things in life. And Tozer says, now, if that guy took two dimes, two little tiny dimes, the smallest of coins, and he put them right there in front of his eyes, it would obscure his vision of the greatness of God. And Tozer's point is this. It doesn't take a lot of money to get between you and God. That's why disciples think about it. That's why disciples think a lot about the proper place of money and the proper use of money as a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. The, the followers of Jesus are told over and over again to view the use of money and the place of money and, and the proper uh, understanding of money through the lens of the kingdom of God. So the bottom line is really when Jesus is talking about money, where he's talking about my money or whether he's talking about your money, he's really not talking about money. He's talking about your heart. And he's talking about the place of God in your life with all of the possessions that he's blessed you with. You know, sometimes we think that God is against making money. He's not. He blesses lots of people with the ability to make lots of money. He blesses all of us with some kind of ability to take care of ourselves. He blesses all of us with the participation in the nobility of work. It's not about the ability to make money, even a lot of money. It's about what that money is to be used for as a blessing of God and our proper relationship with it. And as Jesus says in Luke chapter 16, if God is not changing your heart, then money is going to be changing your heart. And that's why as disciples, we have to think about it. So I want to think of, about the Word of God and what it has to say about money from three different perspectives. The first one is this. It's about life. Real life is in Christ and it's not in your cash. Real life is in Christ and it's not in your cash. If you make money, your life's foundation, if that's what you're thinking about, if that's where all of your best energies are being poured into, then you're destined for a miserable life. One day, and this is the way that Jesus was always living his life, he's going around teaching people, right? And the crowds would show up, and he would teach them, and he'd teach them for long periods of time. And he's doing this in Luke chapter 12. And at the end of this particular time of teaching, there's this guy that in the back of the crowd stands up, and he, and he yells at Jesus, Hey, teacher, will you talk to that brother of mine? 
Will you tell him to divide and, and, and share the inheritance with me? And Jesus says, you know, I don't really get into that kind of business, but I want to say something to everybody here. And he says to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life itself, the life that God gives you, the life that you're living right now, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, most Americans do not believe that. Most Americans do not believe that. That's why there is a tremendous amount of fear below the surface in our culture. If you were to drill down deeply into our society, into our culture, emotionally and psychologically and spiritually and, uh, uh, and, and financially, what you would discover below the surface is this strong current of anxiety. Just below, it's an undercurrent of fear, an undercurrent of stress that's just below the surface in our culture. And the reason is, if money is your security, this is what's going to keep me safe. This is what gives me an identity. This is what gives me power and influence. This is what makes my life. Then you are always going to be dealing with fear. Why? Because you're building your life on something that's always under threat. It could be threat, uh, the threat of moths that are going to come in and eat it away. Or the threat of rust that one day it's just going to disappear because it's gotten old and it's fallen apart because we live in a world that's cycling down. Or thieves are going to take it. Or sometimes it's not even a thief. Sometimes it's not a thief but a good-hearted, well-meaning individual that just happens to come by at the, at the wrong time. This is a famous video uh, of a candy bar, Jap candy bar, from Jamaica from the 1990s that I want you to watch. That's me right there. I'm always tired after a run. And fear gives way to sorrow. <laughs> you know, that video, every time I see it, I've seen it since the 1990s, every time I see that, I'm always reminded that Jesus never told anyone that the answer to their problems was more money. What did Jesus tell them? He said, a relationship with me, the kingdom of God, is the answer to everything in this life. That's why he said to all of those people that were struggling, there at the beginning of the first century when he's alive and teaching there in Galilee near Capernaum and he's, he's teaching about people about the tenets of the kingdom of God. He says, this is what real life is all about. It's about being blessed by God in ways that you never thought that you would be blessed. And it's being blessed even in states of life that don't seem to correlate very well to, to blessing. But God will bless you and take care of you. And he says, you know what? Don't be like people who don't understand God, that don't care about God, that don't have a, 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 a yearning and a desire for God. He said those people chase after what they're going to eat and what they're going to drink and where they're going to sleep and, and what they're going to wear. And Jesus says, don't be like that. But in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33, seek first His kingdom. That's the answer. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And all these things will be given to you as well. That's the answer that Jesus gives. 
Real life is not in, in, in cash, but in Christ. Number two, it's not what's in your bank account, but what's in your heavenly portfolio. Let me say that again. It's not what's in your bank account, but what's in your heavenly portfolio. In Mark chapter 8 and verse 36, a very famous verse, Jesus says, What good is it for someone, for anyone, for anyone in this room to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Now again, Jesus is not calling people to be poor in order to be spiritual. What he's saying is that there is something far more precious and something that is greater in, in, in value and greater in wealth than the material wealth that we encounter and struggle with and live with in, in this life. What if you gained the entire world and, and you're rich and you have lots of money in your bank account, but there's poverty in your heart? towards God and towards other people. It's about a mindset of what money is and what it's used for in the hands of a person who says that God is Lord and Master in their life. And that is not a natural mindset that, that we share in our culture. And just, just to make that clear, you know, one of the things that we always say around here is that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. That we study the Word of God, we press our mind into it, we discover what it says, and then we let the chips fall where it may. Now, with that in mind, listen to these two examples and just think about it. There is a widow in a church. She is poor. She, is, she barely makes a, 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 a living to be able to, to feed herself and, to pay, and the church helps her with medication and these kinds of things. And, and God puts it on her heart to give her last $300 to a missionary. And she comes to you and she asks your advice and you say, No way. You need that money. My advice to you is, is to not give it and to keep it in that bank account. Don't give it. Don't give it, but, but keep it. Second example. There's this guy that comes up from church, guy that you've known for a long time, very successful business fella. He comes up to you and says, you know what, I don't like to brag right now, but you know what, I have just sold my business and I have become one wealthy individual. I am one rich human being. And I'm never going to have to worry about working again. I'm never going to have to worry about money again. You know what I'm going to do? I am going to retire and I'm going to live well. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go and play every PGA golf course in North America. And when I'm done with that, I'm going to go and get those professional golf courses in Europe. And I'm go then I'm going to go to Dubai. And I'm going to play golf. And you say, wow, man, what a great life. Congratulations. Job well done. You know what? I wish I was living your life. Now, if those two ending sentiments resonated with you, you need to understand that you've just given the opposite of advice that Jesus has given in both of those. In Luke chapter 21, Jesus says, look at that widow over there who's given her last two mites. And over in Luke chapter 12, he tells this story about this 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 rich fool who said, you know what, I've got all of this stuff, I never have to worry again. I'm just going to build bigger and bigger barns. The opposite advice. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 20, store up for yourselves treasure in heaven. And in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 18, command them to, be, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly what? That is truly life. One last thought. It's not about earthly possessions, 
but kingdom obsession. The Wycliffe Bible translators go all over the world. They, they discover languages and, and how to, a lot of these languages are just spoken. There's nothing written. They discover how to, how to phonetically spell them and to, and to put the alphabet together. And, and they spend a lot of time putting the Bible into the hands of people that, that, that have never heard or even understood what a Bible was for. And they go all over the world. And they go to really remote places. And in uh, one of their, their publications called In Other Words, they tell the story of this gal by the name of Sadie Syker, who was a house mother for some of the missionary kids with the Wycliffe Bible Translator Group in the Philippines. And as these folks were out in the jungle and they were with these indigenous groups, Sadie was taking care of the kids. And she loved to read. And she was a big reader, collected books. Uh, she would loan books out to people, but she had a couple of books that were her treasure. They were books that she would never lend to anybody. And what she did is she put those books in a footlocker, locked it up, and put it under her bed. Well, one night she wakes up because she hears a strange noise. And she keeps listening and listening and listening. She gets up. It, that's a strange noise. What in the world is that? She's going around the room, finally discovers that it sounds like gnawing, and it's coming from under her bed. So she looks. Nothing. It sounds like it's coming from inside of the footlocker. She opens it up. Termites had gotten in there and had completely destroyed all of her favorite books in the entire world, had reduced them to sawdust. She said, it was at that point that I realized that the stuff I'm hoarding and not being generous with is the stuff I lose. And really, the things that I have in this life still are the things that I've given away. She'd, she'd given away books. Those were the books that came back to her. One of the things that Sadie's life teaches us is that, you know, when we hoard and hoard and hoard and we think we're getting richer and richer and richer, we're actually becoming more and more impoverished. And, and when we give these things away and when we're generous the way that God is generous, what we're becoming is rich toward God. And discipleship is about this growing obsession to be God's possession. And once you realize that God is your greatest treasure, that they can take everything away from you in this life, but you are not, you are not defeated, that you have poison in this life because of that one thing that you have, that God is your Savior, that God is your Father, that God is, is the one that will resurrect you and bring you into His heaven. It, it doesn't matter what happens to you. That's, if that's your treasure, then you're still rich. And when you realize that you're rich that way, you realize that, that it's, it's, it's easier to give some of it away when you know that you've given it all up for Jesus. And that's why he says in Luke chapter 14, you cannot be my disciple unless you give up everything. When you give up everything for Christ, it just makes giving some of it away for Christ easier. And we have a model. We have a model in our life. For the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at Philippians chapter 2. And we saw one who considered his riches, richness toward God, not something, that equality with God, not something to be grasped, but emptied himself, sacrificed those divine prerogatives and those divine privileges in such a way that he was able to come to us. He emptied himself, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, in order to become a man. And he did not stop giving there. He ended up giving away all of, of, the, the, of, the, of the prestige that would come to him as the creator of the universe and is born humbly in a, in a manger with everyone trying to seek his life. 
And not only does it, does, does it get worse, but it, his descent does not stop there. He becomes the servant, and not just a servant, but somebody who is obedient to death and not just giving up his life and giving away that life for us in love, but death as a criminal, cruelly and brutally on a cross. And when you think about that, and you meditate on that, and you wrap your heart and your mind around Philippians chapter 2, and you think about the call to come into God's kingdom and the cost it was to God, the, the great cost it was to God to make that real and to make that true. You go, that is my treasure. That is my treasure. And whatever I'm blessed with, whether it's a talent, whether it's a windfall, whether it's the ability to, to, to make money, whether it's the ability to speak or to teach, whatever you've been blessed with, and you're rich in. You don't mind giving it up for that kind of God and for that kind of King who loves you like that. Because when you think about it, it just melts you down. Ben's going to lead us in a song right now. And we're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front, our spiritual leaders of our church. And if there are ways that our church can minister to you and to help you and to study with you, help you understand how you come into relationship with God in such a way that not only do you become His treasure, but that He becomes your treasure, then we want you to come down and talk to these men as we stand and sing together. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His